Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Today is the second Sunday in the Christian season called Epiphany. And during this season, our church, um, I'm preaching a series of sermons focused on what it looks like for our church to be a missionary church in this particular moment, in this particular city. And at the foundation of this entire sermon series is the belief that God loves this world. And he makes that love present to this world through his son, through his spirit, and through his church that he adores so much. And so this is not simply a confession of faith that God loves the world. It's a calling. It's a calling for us to embrace and embody that love in this particular city that we live in to bear God's love to our neighbors. Now, I want to spend the first few minutes of the sermon reviewing last week, and we're not going to do this every week, but it's important that this framework we see in Jeremiah chapter 29 really does um, sink deep into our imaginations. Israel, in Jeremiah chapter 29, God's people, have been conquered by the wicked, pagan, bloodthirsty Babylon. And when Babylon conquered a nation, part of their strategy was to eradicate the religious and the political and the national identity of the people they conquered. And part of the way they would do this is when they would go and obliterate a country, a nation, they would take the ruling class, the elites, the, the stewards of the culture, the influencers, and they would deport them back to Babylon, back to the capital of, of this nation, and they would force them to live in, that, in the capital of their own nation, Babylon. And what they wanted to achieve by this is they wanted to get the thought leaders, the influencers, to be Babylonian to adopt the culture of Babylon um, so, so that they would assimilate into Babylon and that the influencers of the conquered country would assimilate into the identity of the conquering company, country. And when this happened to Israel in the year 587 BC, there was a false prophet a religious leader of Israel by the name of Hananiah. And he told these Israelites that had been deported to Babylon, he told them, just hang on. It's not going to take very long. Within two years, this is all going to be over, and you're going to get to come back to Israel, back to the way things were. This is Jeremiah chapter 28. So these Israelites who had been deported into Babylon should just rent houses. They shouldn't actually settle down. Just work for temp agencies. Don't actually get involved. Just hold the line. Now, in our reading from Jeremiah chapter 29, we see that God actually, that wasn't his plan. He had a different plan. And God gave his plan through this letter that his prophet Jeremiah wrote to these deported Israelites. He said to them, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 6, God wants his people to increase in number and do not decrease. Now, part of what that means is they need to maintain their distinct identity as the people of God. 
But God also tells them to settle down and engage in the great city of Babylon, to build homes and plant gardens. And most striking of all, God says to these Israelites, who he wants to maintain their identity as children of the true king, he says to them, I want you to serve Babylon. Serve it. Not hate it. Not just be an island in the midst of Babylon, but engage it and serve it. He says this in to seek the shalom, the peace, the flourishing, the prosperity of Babylon. Now, what would it take for you if, I don't know, one of our enemies as a nation conquered us, deported us, raped, pillaged, destroyed, and then God said to you, um, I sent you there. I want you to serve that city. I want you to love that city. I want you to care for that country. I want you to recognize that your job is it's flourishing. Now, that's bizarre, isn't it? Because we're so accustomed to thinking of our enemies and our job with our enemies is not their flourishing. Right? Your job is the flourishing of that city. Pray to the Lord for it. Now, by the time he says pray to the Lord for it, we now know he doesn't mean pray to the Lord against it. He means pray to the Lord for its flourishing. Last week, we saw that this is a hard thing to do. It's hard for lots of reasons because we don't like our enemies, right? We don't like the people who kill our parents, right? I mean, just by nature, we don't want to help the people flourish who raped and pillaged our own people. That's hard. But it's also hard for another reason. It's hard because the people of Israel are having an identity crisis. Not long before this, they were living in Jerusalem, which was a very different culture. And those Israelites remember that they used to run the culture, that the culture used to be the culture they liked, the culture that they were the source of and the steward of. But now they're called by God to indwell a culture they don't like, a culture they're not the source of, and a culture that they don't have influence in. And that's really helpful for us. How do we relate to a culture we don't like, to a culture we don't have influence in? How do we relate to a culture that is, we're neither the source of nor the steward of and has harmed us? This creates an identity crisis. Now, Israel was tempted in that identity crisis just to hunker down into a ghetto, right? Just us, protect but God said, that's not the identity I want for you. I don't want you to do that. I want you instead to develop the identity of being a missionary community. That's different than being the ruling class. It's different than being the source and the steward of the culture. And it's different than hating your enemies. I want you to be a missionary community in Babylon. And that's so scary. This culture with different values, and some of those values are very dangerous. And this passage is so helpful for us, the church today, because we, the church in the West today, we used to be the source and the steward of the culture. But now, we are not. We're not in Jerusalem anymore. We are a missionary church sent by God into this culture. We're not the majority we are the minority. We're not trusted. We are distrusted. The church has been moved from an establishment community to a missionary community. And some of you within your lifetime, 
Some of you, you can remember when the Christians were the source of the culture and the stewards of the culture, and they had great influence in the culture. But like Israel in exile in Babylon, we are no longer that. And so we have to resist the temptations that come with this identity crisis the church is living through. Three main temptations. One is to retreat, to flee, to attempt to construct isolated religious communities where we can practice our faith privately. Christian communities closed off from a meaningful conversation with the larger culture. We're tempted to abandon the city. A second temptation, instead of retreating, is the temptation to aggressively take back the culture. Once again, dominate the culture. Use politics and power to regain control of the culture. This, in a lot of ways, is the Christian right movement. It was a 30-year attempt to regain influence over the culture through politics. Other churches are tempted in their effort to avoid those two extremes. We don't want to abandon and we don't want to dominate. We want to stop making waves. <laughs> so we assimilate and we allow ourselves to be absorbed into the new liberal consensus, surrendering our distinctive Christian identity by thinning out our faith and draining the gospel of its central power. These are the three muscle memory moves of the church in America. And all three of these moves are not missionary moves. They're easy moves for us, but they're not the missionary move. The missionary move is a fourth option. And we can be a missionary church within the culture. And unlike those who just blend in and assimilate, we will refuse to surrender our identity as Christians, to alter our religious convictions and, and, and just to fit in with the new secular age. And unlike those who retreat or those who fortify, we will, a missionary church will practice its faith openly in the public square. We have to resist the temptation to take back the country, to restore Christian leadership of the country. We need a state in a society where all religions and all worldviews get a fair shake at the public square. That's what we should have done when we were in charge. But we didn't. And now we're getting it fed back to us. We once alienated competing voices and now that we're no longer in control, we're getting treated the same way. And this is what a lot of people always felt like who weren't Christian. We're now in their position. Now, here's the deal. We can do this. It's hard. It's complicated. We can be a missionary church because the church has done it before. We can draw on the riches of a 2,000-year missionary tradition. We can draw on the periods of church history where the church lived as a missionary community. We can find the practices that sustain the church in its missionary moments in the past. And over the course of this series, we're going to look at six of those foundational practices that it takes to actually be nurtured and sustained as a missionary church in a when you're a minority in a, majority in a majority culture. This morning, we're going to look at the first of those practices. 
And it's, it's a simple one. It won't take long. And it's this. We must embrace our context. Not hate it. Not ignore it. But embrace it. The particular context we live in. So if you have your Bible, turn to our New Testament reading that um, I think Joetta read. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And I want you to listen again to verse 2, where Paul identifies the recipients of the letter. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, two equal phrases. This group of Christians is in two places. What two places are they in? Is the word, is a preposition in used with? They are in Christ and they are in Corinth. And a missionary church takes both locations seriously. It doesn't get to say I'm in Christ and where I live doesn't matter. And it doesn't get to say where I live matters in Christ. He's on the edges. We are in Christ and we are in this moment. And we've got to take both of those seriously. Next week, we're going to look at what it means to be in Christ. But this week, we've got to recognize that a real missionary church has two phrases. It is in Christ and it is in a particular place. And it embraces Christ and it embraces its place. Paul is identifying the church in these two dimensions. Now, remember back in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 5, God tells Israel to do this. He tells them to settle down, engage in the life of Babylon, build homes there. You build homes differently in Babylon than you do in Jerusalem. They have different building materials, different ways of building, different environmental threats. He told them to plant gardens. Well, you plant different crops in Babylon than you do in Jerusalem. In Jer Jeremiah, God is saying to Israel, your problem is that you're thinking disproportionately about yourself. I want you to think more about your place. I want you to spend more time not just thinking about your own experience of exile, deportation, trauma, suffering, being the minority, being distrusted. I want you in the midst of all that pain and suffering and all that crisis of identity, I want you to spend more time thinking about your neighbors and their experiences and what life is like for them. Because being forced to build a house in a place and plant a garden in a place forces you to the farmer's co-op and the builder's co-op. And you suddenly, you have to spend time with other people and you have to know them. If we are going to be a missionary church, we have to embrace our context, our place. Now, how do you embrace your place? It's very simple. The very first thing to do to embrace a context is to listen. To listen. If we are going to be a missionary church, we must be ready to listen to our neighbors and to learn from them. To listen is to love. Our neighbors are real people and they are people to be loved. And the best way to love people is to listen to them. 
Stop telling them you know what they're going through. And let them tell you. I mean, parents, when you sit your teenagers down and say to them, I know what you're going through. Let me tell you how to do this. Does that teenage child of yours just feel so deeply loved? No. You can't love without listening. We must become good listeners. Jesus bids us to embody God's kindness and love toward our neighbors and our enemies alike. And this can't be done if we don't learn how to listen, truly listen, to listen with the goal of understanding and loving the person who's willing to tell us their story and their experiences. One of the biggest problems on the whole LGBTQ issue right now is that the evangelical church is not listening. We have to listen. It is foolish and arrogant of us to interpret the larger culture from our own perspective and not pay attention to how those who are going through it are actually interpreting it to us. Listening requires friendship. It requires proximity. Listening doesn't mean agreement and approval. Listening love doesn't mean agreement and approval. And we see this in our gospel reading. John chapter 1. Turn there. Turn to our gospel reading. John chapter 1. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is God's Word. And God's lamb. And he's come into the world for the good of all people who are all God's creatures, all loved by God. And in verse 14, we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jeremiah 29. That is Jesus embodying the move God called Israel to in Jeremiah 29. Jesus is the missionary God. And look what it says, we have seen his glory, and glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And back in verse 11, we're told, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, they rejected him. This whole world is God's creation and still in the face of rejection, God moves toward. He moves among. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He drew near to his neighbors. To love is to listen. Listening love doesn't mean agreement and approval, but it does mean friendship and attention. Now, if we stop focusing on our Christian experience of being decentered in American culture and we start listening to the non-Christians about their experience while we were in power, what are some of the things we're going to hear? One of the things we're going to hear is that this age we live in is contradictory and it's complicated. Our age, our, our time, it grew out of the Enlightenment and the architects of the Enlightenment dreamed of freedom. The Enlightenment was built on the dream of freedom, free to be free from being controlled intellectually, controlled economically, and controlled religiously. The, the dream of being free to fashion a new world where, where we could seek our own reasonable truths and our own technological dreams and our own economic fullness and our own self-governance in our lives and our societies. 
That's the enlightenment dream. If you don't know the enlightenment dream, you haven't been listening. You have to listen. And the, and the dream of the enlightenment was for freedom. And there are elements of that dream that are beautiful. And some of those beautiful elements have come true. And it's important that as we embrace our context, as we move into Babylon, into Corinth, into Harrisonburg, the United States, the West, that we resist being an isolated island in the midst of secular America. It's important that we recognize there is much good in the Enlightenment dream. The emphasis on reason brought education to people who never had access to education. Public education came out of this dream. The emphasis on productivity, it led to the creation of incredible technologies and unimaginable wealth. The, the energy for self-governance opened up the possibilities for individuals and societies that had never been seen before. We need to see that part of the dream our secular neighbors have is beautiful and it's full of light. But it is also full of darkness. There are shadows. The same Western culture that brought education to the world brought some of the most destructive ideologies this world has ever seen. The same productivity that brought unprecedented wealth to the world also created tragic and unprecedented inequalities. The same technologies that promise freedom have been used to enslave and destroy millions of people. And the same self-governance that gives us democracy has also made us one of the most selfish and self-absorbed societies in all of history. So the light was real, but the shadows are real too. And if you were white, and if you were male, for several centuries, the light was so bright, you could not see the shadows. But over time, the shadows have become visible. And we live in a different moment than our grandparents lived in. We live in a moment where the light of the enlightenment and the shadows are all visible, all bound up together. We live in an age of contradiction. There is a profound struggle going on in our city between the dream of an enlightenment utopia and the realities that are dark. And you can see this going on, for example, in our public school system where there are some great ideas and some dark realities, where light and shadow mingle together. We live in an age of contradiction where we and our neighbors are conflicted about what is true. It, it hasn't always been so hard to know what's true, where we're confused about our identities, where we're cynical about government and the possibility of community. And yet this is the age God has put us in. This is the age God has sent us to. We don't get to hate it. We don't get to despise it. We have to embrace it for all of its complicated nature, for all of its contradictions. This is our city. This is our age. And the first practice of a missionary church is to stop hating to embrace its context. Would Mother Teresa have been able to do what she did if she hated the slums? If she hated the people there? 
If she hated the customs there, we don't live in a Christian nation. We live in a secular nation. We must embrace our context. Now, what do we do with this? Because this is a scary place to be in because you're thinking of all the dangers and harms it's done and the beauties and it's so contradictory, right? What do we do with it? So I want to finish my sermon by reflecting on two minor moments in the last days of Jesus's life that I think helped me keep my balance in this contradictory moment we live in. The first is in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, verses 50 through 51, just two verses, we have a minor event in the major week that Jesus concluded his life in. It's the night Jesus was betrayed. He and his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Darkness has fallen. Roman soldiers and officials from the high priest have come to arrest Jesus. A fight breaks out. Peter draws his sword and starts swinging. And does anybody know what he hits? He cuts off the, that's right. Somebody in the room just did to their son. <laughs> he cuts off, that's right, the ear of the slave of the high priest. Anybody know his name? Malchus, that's right. Here's what I want you to think on and reflect on. In the midst of the chaos and cacophony of a fist fight, a brawl, sword swinging, ears getting cut off, blood squirting like Monty Python, merely a flesh wound. In the midst of all of that, Jesus rebukes Peter's aggressive attack and he heals the slave who had come to bind him. The slave was there to arrest Jesus. This is Christ's final miracle on earth. Did you know that? And in this brief exchange between the slave and the slave king, there is a lot for us to learn in this hard moment we live in. So just imagine for me an imaginary conversation, okay? They're in the garden. The police are screaming and yelling. Peter is full Braveheart mode. And Jesus, as he's being arrested, imagine, I mean, we don't know what all happened when he healed the ear, right? But let, let's do some historical fiction. Imagine Jesus bending over and whispering into Malchus's newly healed ear. Malchus, am I not the one who is willing to deliver you from slavery? Listen, Malchus, I am the priest who would become a slave to convert a slave into a Lord. Do you see that the God who stopped to heal Malchus, do you see how he looks at his enemy? Do you see that there are no small wounds? He does not know insignificant people. I mean, think about this. While the fate of the cosmos hangs in the balance, while God's only son is being arrested, Christ stops and gives his full attention to the wounds of a minor actor in the whole drama. 
A lot of Christians assume that we live in a Christian context where there are social liberals pounding at the gates, threatening to destroy what we've built. And the goal is to keep those people from triumphing, that this is a Christian nation founded on Christian principles, and that this, there is this increasing liberal minority trying to destroy what we've built. So swing the sword, Peter, or Jesus who has a different view of this thing. In Jesus, we see a different posture than swinging the sword. He healed, not simply when he was safe and secure, but also when he was being bound and led to his death. Disciples who follow the healer of Malchus are called to stretch out our hands even toward those who are coming to bind us. The chaotic cacophony of Gethsemane is complex and it is challenging and it is frightful, but this does not remove our missionary calling. We must embrace our context. And this brings me quickly to a second moment in the life of Christ that challenges me how to operate in this environment we live in. And this is in John chapter 19. And it's just one verse. Another minor moment in the major week of Jesus' life. John chapter 19, verse 23, Christ was stripped of his clothes before his crucifixion. John 19, verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, which means there was nothing left. And this is excruciating to look at. In fact, we refuse to paint it, don't we? And we wouldn't let our children look at the painting, would we? Not of Jesus' genitalia. We look away. It's horrible. Stripped naked. Exposed for all to see. Mocked and spit on. And we want to look away, but we shouldn't. This is part of his work. The naked king mocked as ugly and weak and pathetic. You can still see ancient graffiti on the walls of archaeological digs of barracks in Rome where they caricatured Jesus hanging on the cross with a donkey's head. And so when I think on this and I pray on this and I sit with this, it helps me to get over myself when I'm disrespected, when I'm stripped and I'm exposed it helps me to stop expecting to be praised and accepted and empowered in our culture. The vicious mocking and derision of the naked king received on the cross is something I should not be surprised when it happens in my life. I follow a slave king and I follow a naked king. This is the cost of following the creator who was rejected by his own. But there's one more thing here in the naked king that helps me in this moment. And it's this, it helps me when I look at Christ being stripped and mocked and I recognize that I was there and the church has been there and we have done our fair share of stripping and abusing Jesus. See, it helps me to make a move that it's not just the enemies, it's me. I knelt earlier and confessed my sins. 
It is not just secular America who has abused Jesus. And when we listen to our neighbors tell the story of our culture, we need to hear from them when they tell us that the church has been the violent aggressor. We are capable of the violence of Golgotha. For example, while our country was formed on Christian principles, and in that sense we are a Christian nation, we were also the kind of Christian nation that enslaved 12 million African Americans. And the church did that. And the preachers in the pulpit supported it. And the churches in the South advocated for the Slavery Return Act, suspense of habeas corpus. If a slave was found on the streets of the North, he could be arrested and sent back. And the preachers supported that and the churches supported that. And there are lots of other areas where we need to stop talking and start listening to secular America that has plenty to say about how we've been the aggressor. And I can find the, the courage to let them say that to me when I stand and behold the naked Christ. Because he let us strip and beat him to expose to us that we needed him to clothe us. He let us take off his robe. He let those soldiers rip it off and put it on themselves. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. When we are intolerant, he is tolerant. Our robes of righteousness are graciously given. They are not earned. And without Jesus, we would still be alone, shivering in naked acts of violence and aggression. And so as we engage our culture as a missionary church, we are doing it in clothes we never could have made. Let's pray.